Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everybody. This is the second of a two-part series on the story of Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard, both released at the same time. Make sure you listen to episode 10, which is part one. Then come back here for part two. It's okay. Go on. We'll wait for you. Okay, is everyone ready? It was the last good day before the end of the year. You picked me apart from ear to ear, and the lines are dead. The phone still rings, waiting to see what tomorrow will bring. The last parade that came and went died as fast as the roses you sent. You could not look me in the eye. You stood there and told me another lie. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. That's a clip from Waiting for the Lightning by Ryan Humbert, an Akron Canton fan favorite. Ryan's our featured artist this week, so stick around till the end of the podcast because we know you're going to want to hear the whole song, and we'll play it for you. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Paula. We've got a story to finish, so let's jump right in. You got it. Well, in part one of our story, Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard, a teenage couple from Akron's North Hill neighborhood, had been dating for nearly four months. Ricky was a recent graduate of North Hill High School, Mary just getting ready to start her senior year. On a warm August night in 1979, they went to a drive-in movie to see the Amityville Horror after which they vanished. Ricky's car, a white Chevy Impala with a blue roof, was found the next day near the entrance to a garage on a farm in Northampton Township. Ricky's wallet and a few other personal effects inside. But there was something else that shouldn't have been there. A bullet hole through the passenger window. For nearly six years, their whereabouts were unknown. In 1980, police, acting on a tip, organized a community search along the banks of the Little Cuyahoga River. More than 150 people spent eight hours walking through a thick, forested stretch, but turning up nothing. Police, private investigators, and family members followed up on thousands of leads, none getting any closer to the answers they were so desperately seeking. Until May 29, 1985, when everything changed. On that day, a worker with a backhoe is digging a trench for some underground cables. This is in Akron's Merriman Valley, on the west side of Riverview Road, between Smith and Bath Roads. And it's just 200 yards from where that search along the river ended back in 1980. 
The movement of the backhoe sends something on the surface skidding along the ground. It's a human skull. Over the next two days, forensic teams would carefully sift through the entire area, recovering two sets of bones. First Mary's, then Ricky's. Joining us again for this episode is Mary's brother, Jerry Leonard, and Ricky's sister, Luann Beard. Here's Luann. They sent everything to the Smithsonian. They did not confirm it in Akron. It was all sent to the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. Um, Gosh, several weeks went by. They were found on May 29th. We didn't have a funeral until July of 85. And they were found in May. Did you guys both have services about yeah, the same time same, then? Same day. Same day? Same so day. we were back and forth. Okay. Wow. And then the coroner determined they had both died from multiple gunshots and that Mary also appeared to have been stabbed in the rib area. Mm-hmm. Um, As a matter of fact, when we went down to the scene, one, for some reason, we, my family we were all sitting off to the one side by the sheets and the bags and they were laying there bones out and one of the guys calls me over that was sifting through the dirt and shows me Ricky's shoulder blade with a bullet hole on it. Uh, Why he did that, I have no idea. Well, in that night on the 6 o'clock news they held up his shoulder blade with the bullet hole in it and that's when I lost it. Wow. They literally held it up on the camera on the news that night. But I knew it was them because I looked inside one of the, it was paper grocery bags and I saw my sister's skull. Oh. And I saw her teeth. And I knew it was her. Was that an accident? I mean, did, no, I did, were, it on did purpose. they put you looked I was purpose? a 14-year-old kid. Or no, I was Well, you were then. 19 by then, but, but I was still a kid. Still curious, and I had to see it. And that's something you can't undo. No, mm-hmm. you don't unsee that. Mm-hmm. At this moment, are you... Is there any sense of relief that, okay, we know they're dead, mm-hmm. we've got their bones, now let's move toward finding their killer? Was, was that the sense, or was there just so much grief and loss that you weren't even at that point yet? Well, the, the morning that they were, I was told they were found, I, was at, I already got to work. I worked at Grey Drug. And the store hadn't opened up yet, and they called. Phone rang. My manager answered the phone. He comes walking over to me. He says, I got a phone call that says you need to go home. I said, why? He goes, that's all I know. I tried to call home, couldn't get through. The phone was busy. I get home, all the family's there. And we're waiting for the coroner to come. And at that point, all we knew that they found was Mary at that moment. We still hadn't known if both of them were found. Right. And this was still like 9 o'clock in the morning. And the coroner showed up and came in and says, we verified it. it is Mary. Everybody started, to, except for me, everybody starts crying. And then as they calmed down a little bit, they said Ricky was found too. And I, I'll never forget, I remember looking around at everybody crying. And I'm just sitting there, why am I crying? I couldn't understand why I wasn't crying. That's all I can remember from that moment. And then later on that day, we all went down to the site. Looking back at that 19-year-old boy, do, do you know why? I mean, do have you analyzed what was going through your I, heart? I, I, I have even talked about it not too long ago. I said, I don't understand why it, it didn't hit me at that moment. 
I, it might it might have been shock. I don't know. Maybe I just recall that just looking at everybody crying, and I'm like, why why is it not bothering me, or something to that effect? I just I wonder if it's because you said very early on you kind of accepted that Mary wasn't going to come home, so. Maybe emotionally, you might even have been a little bit ahead of everybody else who might. And that have still could be it because since then, anytime anybody's passed away in the family, I get upset, but I accept it because I know it's going to happen. And it's it's. Wait, that's a lesson you had I to guess learn when at you're, a very when young age. When you're that age. young and you lose a, a, a sibling, then nothing will surprise you anymore. Nothing really bothers you. I mean, I still get upset. Sorry to lose somebody, but I, I'm a, it just, I know it's a fact of life. Luann, you and your family, was, was there some, some relief in, in having those bones discovered? I don't think I could call it relief. Um, it was a closure. Somewhat of a closure, but... Uh, opening up of a new chapter you know now now everything is changed now now we can't hope that he's gonna come up on the porch and and rick was kind of clumsy so he always tripped up on the porch so you know i'd always think oh that thud out there must rick must be home um so you know i didn't we didn't have that thought anymore there was no no bit of hope anymore now it's time to look for a killer. Great. Well, in addition to the bones, investigators found Mary's purse with her wallet and money still inside. Uh, they recovered a knife and sheath that Ricky was known to have had with him that night. They also found clothing in Mary's watch. And the bodies weren't buried. They'd apparently been on top of the ground all along. But this site isn't far from Akron's uh, wastewater treatment plant. And there are suggestions that any odor that might have alerted someone to their presence was masked by the typical odors of that plant. At this point, did either of you think now that they had been found, it would be easier to catch the killer? I mean, were we at a day and age where there was enough technology that you were like, okay, now we can go get the killer? Or was there still not that sense that it could happen? I never even thought about it that way because I really wasn't into that kind of thing to even think about DNA and all that stuff. But even even if there was a chance, the chance was taken the, the day they found the car because the Northampton Police Department released the car the same day back to the Beard family. And nothing... They, they never really invest, uh, did the fingerprints and stuff like that on the car. They never kept them like they should have to... Use it as evidence. That's right. I forgot. This is before Northampton was Chicago Falls. So right. this was a Correct. police department that probably wasn't used to stuff like this. Right. Were they the main investigating agency, Northampton Police? They were the initial. Okay. And, but I didn't they hand it over to the Akron? They did. And then when Northampton dissolved as a township, they handed everything over to Akron. But I don't remember what year that was. I was going to ask if you remembered that. Um, was the FBI ever called in? I don't mm, think so. No. no the FBI, since it wasn't a no proof of kidnapping, no, nothing out of state or anything, they, they, they were never there called was, in. Yeah, there was no proof of a crime until 1985. That's odd, because usually they're called in, and, you know, in the fact of, 
or Linda Pagano, or maybe it wasn't Linda Pagano, it was somebody else where they were at least brought in for a profile of the killer. Or at least since Mary was a minor, I would think that maybe. Right. But maybe not. No, no. Well, the way I understand with the FBI, if, the minor, if they have proof that the minor was taken over state lines, then the FBI would be called in. But okay. other than that, no. whether they were talked to at all, we weren't, we weren't informed. Which is why my dad would try to convince them maybe maybe they went across state lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, my right, dad right. called the FBI himself and would say that stuff. Oh, wow. Just trying to get more eyes right. on the kids. Your dad seems like a very intelligent man, just to be able to think of stuff like that. He, yeah, yeah, he was. But it broke him. Absolutely. Well, I think that it's we've made a significant um, point here, and that is this is now an Akron cold case. So Akron's got charge of this. If anybody knows anything, Akron police are the one you want to go to. So, okay, uh, were there any significant developments over the next 30 years? Uh, did the police come close to having a suspect or a really good theory that your families felt was strongly about? They reopened the case in 2000, was it 99 or 2000? They reopened it in 99 and they said that they were going to put two special detectives on it. Um, Janet and Ed Matthews, brother and sister who were Akron cops who were also from North Hill. Um, Seemed like they were going to let them really have free reign and really dig into it and then all of a sudden it stopped all of a sudden you mean like in a matter of weeks or i I would say months months it it, it went on for quite a while but they never did they they indicate that they had uncovered anything new or is it possible it stopped because they tried for months and came up with absolutely nothing new i i forgot all about that i can't remember what was with their evidence they came up with, if, if anything. But they traveled all quite a few different states following up on leads. And I think part of it was that Janet and Ed were from North Hill, and North Hill is a community that is very close, and I think they felt that they could maybe talk to people and that people would talk to them, okay. and that maybe somebody, if somebody knew something, they would actually tell them. But I... I really don't think anything ever came of it. Is there any piece of evidence in this whole case that you guys think is a, the key to solving this? Is there anything that no. that you hold on to? Is like, if we could figure that out, we've got it. Well, I know the where their remains were found. The guy who owned that property was kind was kind of known to be kind of a kook, and he did threaten to shoot people. He would come out with a gun, and and I think, you know, it probably was kind of a make-out spot for kids. It was kind of secluded down. At that time, there wasn't as much down there that, like there is now. And, you know, he would come out and maybe shoot a gun and scare kids off. And, and literally, their bodies laid on his property for, for you know, six years. So... I don't know. That's the only. Do you thing have any idea sense. how close his house was to the where their bodies you were? You can hardly see his house from the road yeah, because you, far. as you go up his driveway, you went over the railroad tracks and then the rest of the way up to his house. Okay. And they were on. They were right by the road, like in some weeds or was something. Was it between the railroad tracks and the road, or after the railroad tracks? I can't remember now. Sure. I think it was closer to the road. Um, 
but it was by the railroad tracks because MCI was getting ready to build their little substation there or whatever you call it and that's when they found them when they were doing the digging when they were filling back in um, but the, it was a well at that time it was a wooded really heavily wooded area yeah. a lot of brush cut uh, growing up but from what I understand the kids kids would take their chairs and stuff and set them in and had a little make-out area right there, from what I understand. Oh. So we don't know if that's what they did, and he come down, and they got Ricky probably, being Ricky, Yeah. he probably <laughs> got in his guy's face and Maybe it turned, turned ugly. That's one of the, well, that's probably the only scenario that we can come up with that could been, could have been the truth. Okay. Because when the police came and found, after they found the remains, the man that lived there named Frank Lord, he right? Frank Lord. Yes. He uh, actually went up to the police and told them that he was the one that killed him. And they sent him away because he had mental issues from the from the war or whatever he was in the service and they just rubbed him off because of his past. But didn't he also have a brother? His that... brother also told the police he did it. Yeah. And the police just dismissed it. The police, for some reason, were hooked on this whole theory of a motorcycle gang. Mm -hmm. Rick had, Rick was a 19-year-old kid. He just graduated from high school. He didn't have a motorcycle, for one thing. <laughs> um, he had no money. They did find a little bit of pot in the car. Okay, that's not that weird. It was the 70s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were at the drive-in. Probably every kid there had it. Um, I think there was a big push in Akron at that time to get rid of motorcycle gangs, and they really wanted to come down hard on them. So they wanted they wanted a motorcycle gang to have been responsible for this. Wow. Um, but I just there's just nothing that points to that ever. Wow. There was a lot of hearsay. Lot. We heard a lot of stuff about motorcycle gangs possibly saying that Ricky stole a motorcycle and they finally caught up to him, that his buddy was beat up and that was with them at the time they supposedly stole a motorcycle. We heard all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, that just goes along with all the crazy tips that we got. Right, right. Well, and, and at least for a brief time, there was one other possibility that ar arised, and this came very late. It was 2009, and an Akron native by the name of Edward Wayne Edwards you know, he now has the tagline, the most dangerous serial killer you've never known, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, that. He's, uh, he could be very prolific if they tie a lot of this stuff to him. And according to his family, they, can tie, they, they, they consider him, you know, a lot more than what he's been, you know, tied to so far. Yeah, he, he was turned in by his daughter, and he was arrested for killing a, a couple in Wisconsin. And while he was in custody, he admitted to another famous cold case of a couple in Northeast Ohio, the murders of Billy Lavaco and Judy Straub, who were found in 1977 in Silver Creek Metro Park in Norton. And that's just a 20-minute drive from where Ricky and Mary lived and died. So did the police, when, when he came out and um, admitted to killing Straub and, and Lavaco, did the police ever come to you and say, hey, we've got this guy who's been killing couples, including one in our area. I went to the police when that story broke. Did you? And they said they didn't see any connection. 
But you said that the daughter of Ed Edwards tried reaching out to you one time, thinking that maybe and he that did. Was, that was just like two months ago. Oh, wow. That was in 2018. Yeah. And so she, she might fail. She somehow feels her father may be connected, although he didn't live here at that time. Um, and someone who claimed to be a federal marshal in Cleveland called me and asked me for my phone number, and I gave it to him so that this lady could call me. She never has, but it's been about two months ago. Wow, well, that would that would be interesting. I know that she feels she's got. I don't know if you've listened to her story, but you, mm -hmm. if you look online, you'll see her giving interviews. But she had an incredible story of her her dad moving around she does, in yes. her childhood, and the Norton case, which was just two years before Ricky and Mary disappeared. Um, I don't know. It, it certainly seems like an idea to pursue. And they had lived on North Hill. The Edwards family did. Oh, no. I didn't know that. Yes. I did not know that. Um, supposedly someone, I don't think it was Mary that babysat for them, but somebody, would you guys have had a cousin or anything? You know what that's Raiden Campanella. I'm not sure. Somebody thinks there was, they might have Oh, you mean him. one of the Campanelli's babysat for him. And who are the Campanelli's to you? The Campanelli's are my aunt and uncle. Okay. My mom's sister. Well, that's, that's chilling. That is chilling because uh, the cool. ones here is tied to, he knew those people. Yeah. He knew right. the people that he killed. Well, that's true. One of the reasons I told Steve, I says, I don't know, this isn't, at Edward's M.O. because both the couples he killed, he knew. And I thought, why would he snatch a random couple of teenagers off the street? But oh, who knows? Maybe he knew them. Although they hadn't lived here for a while at that point, so I don't know. Right, right. I don't know if they knew him or not. Well, unfortunately, he died. He was actually convicted of that Norton killing and, like, died the next year. He was sick when he... When he Cop to it. Yeah, there was feeling that he probably would have copped him more if he was, you know, still alive. Yeah, somebody said they thought he had copped to this one because he wanted to come back to Ohio. And if he ag agreed to a killing here, then he would come back here and die here. I don't know if that was even the case. But, I don't know. But. You know, one thing I do want to go back to is uh, that night the neighbor seen him. You, you mentioned that a lot of people would hang out outside very late because it was hot. So there could have been more than just one witness there, and maybe, maybe somebody out there has a story to tell about a family member who, you know, either could back that witness up or, you know, refute those claims. Right, so right. hopefully somebody out there has something. I also want to go back to the car. That is unbelievable. They released the car, was it the next day? Same day. The same day. Okay. That has got to be so frustrating that the same day they released that car back. Had, was there any pictures taken of the vehicle? I'm sure there was, but I'd never, I've never seen the report on the, on the actual finding of the car. A bullet hole. Through the back seat. Through the back seat, and no blood. Through the passenger window. And no blood. I thought they said it was from the back, no? They thought that somebody would have shot it from the back seat. From the back the seat. The whole went through the passenger window. I see. The floor on the back seat. Through, I see. Through the front seat. 
and then out the windshield. Oh, so even that angle, like not just the, the back seat, but down, yeah. shooting from down. But up. no blood in the car. But no blood. See, that, that's another thing. You, you read about, you know, all these couples that are killed, like, you know, uh, Lover's Lane and stuff, and most of those crime scenes are never cleaned up. They're just left. It's surprising that there's no blood in the car. Maybe they just don't look that good if they're Well, or it might it have been day. a warning shot, like drive or, you know, who knows? It could have been some kind of warning shot. Or, or it could have just been... to throw somebody off, to throw the trail off, you know? Well, that could be. You're right, because they said that the car might have been moved. The car um, was... There was an old barn at that time on Portage Trail, and the car was like... It almost looked like it was wrecked into it, but not wrecked. But the... The opening of the barn wasn't wide enough for the car to go in, so it was almost like somebody thought maybe they could drive the car into the barn, but they couldn't because the doorway wasn't wide enough, and they just left it there. Oh, so it was that close to another building? Yeah. And there was a like okay. a bush tree type thing right there because the the doors faced this way, and here's the street, and the doors faced this way, and there was a bush here, so the car was kind of hidden behind that bush partially into the garage from what I understand. Yeah. Like, they, like she said, like to try to pull it in there, couldn't get it in. So the back end stuck out just enough where one of the police officers happened to spot it driving by. And it sat off quite a ways from the road, too. And that's how it was discovered. A police officer spotted it. Right. That's mm -hmm. what I recall. Okay. All right. Matter of fact, I think he was on his way into work, if I remember correctly, and he saw it on his way into work. Maybe, maybe. Or on his way home. I think it was on his way into work. Well, as we've mentioned, next year's going to be 40 years, and that is a long time. How do, you, how do you guys feel about the person who did this, and have your feelings changed over four decades? Hmm. It's hard to feel about some somebody Well, I, that you never, never met, don't know who it is. Uh, I know my mom has forgiven whoever it is. Um, I I struggle with that feeling. I, I really don't know what to think about them with, without knowing who it is. I know somebody did something. I don't know. Yeah, without any type of identity or motive or anything, I, I really have never thought about mm -hmm. if I forgive the person. Um, but I feel that that person changed the trajectory of all of our lives, for sure. Um, my dad died before they were found. My dad passed away in 1981. And on his deathbed, he said he could see Rick. And I think, I think the pull of Rick was more than his pull to earth and I think that's why he let go and I didn't realize that at the time because I was young but I, I really believe that and, and when my mother was passing away we all told her it's okay you can go because you, you need to see Rick you can go and I think that's why I was okay with my mother going because she needed, she needed to see him, yeah. and I'm okay. I, you know, my life is okay. 
I'm sorry that he missed out on these kids. Um, I gave birth to triplets in 1983. And two years before they were found. Two years before they were found. And so many people said to me, that's God giving you your father and your brother back. He gave you two extra babies. Aww. So, you know, whether that's really true or not, but, you know, it, it was certainly something that helped the family heal because then everybody everybody needed to help take care of the triplets. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. That That's a bonding thing. Right. My sister only had twins, and it took the whole family to raise <laughs> them, so I can see that. Uh, Luana Jerry, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you guys want to bring up? Anybody else in the room? Come on up. Yeah, come on up. We're going to introduce her. This is Erica. Yeah. Oh, hey. This is one of the. This is this is Luann's daughter, Erica. <laughs> um, I think it. Uncle Tim said it the best. Um, just a few minutes before everybody got here today, um, that to pass this down, to have have to have to pass this down to us, their children, and now we have our parents have grandchildren, that this still is not resolved in our families is a big thing for us. I think that's that was very poignant to point that out, that I think that now not only do we have one generation with um, missing family members and a horrible thing happen, now it's being passed down. So it's in our laps now to figure this out for our families. And I think that that's huge. And I didn't think about it until he just said it. And I'm like, wow, because my kids are seven and nine. And I had to explain to them today what I was doing. And I think that I didn't go into details, of course, but certainly they go, oh, I didn't even know. You know, and because they're not of the age to know. Sure. But certainly now we're passing that to our kids. And we want resolution not only for our family, but for our grandparents that are not no longer with us, and Jerry and Connie both have grandchildren that are small, and, you know, it's this thing that has always loomed over our family. So I think it's very poignant to say that it is something that we all want resolved. You know, we've been immersed with it, too, because it is our, it's our family. Sure. So I think that's... I don't think anybody could have put it better. Yeah, I think that's... Thank you. That's right. Yeah. Well, and I think the way that... Suddenly, when I had teenagers, every night when they left the house to do what teenagers do, this was in the back of my mind. Yeah. And, you know, not that you don't worry about your teenagers enough, but I probably worried a little more than the average parent did. I would imagine. I know our family watched over each other like hawks when we had family get-togethers. And if one of the kids wasn't in eyesight, they was like, where are they at? And they'd be found right then and there. Um, our daughter, Ashley, when she was in preschool, they at the end of the year they had a picnic, and we went to Waterbrook Park. And I was... I'm, 
cooking on the grill and my wife comes up to me and says, we can't find Ashley. So I said, okay. But they had all the kids. She was in the nursery that she was with was at North High School. So it was a bunch of students that were preschool. And um, they were watching the kids. And so I said, okay. I stayed calm. She come back up to me. We still can't find her. So I jumped in the car, drove from front to back of that park looking for her. And finally, one of the kids found her and walked her over to me. And I handed her off to her mother and bawled. Because the only thing I could think of was my mom and dad going through this again. But the, here she had wandered off from the sandbox to another sandbox on the other side of the parked cars that were all parked in. It was blocking her. She was all by herself. And um, that's why I don't have any hair. <laughs> but but th that's the effect that this put on our family. That the first thing you think of is she's gone. What? Jerry Luann, thank you so much. It can't be easy. We're living this over and over. And I know you guys are, your families have worked hard to keep this in the public eye. I've seen the many anniversary stories. You're out there all the time trying to remember, um, make people remember that this case is still unsolved in the hopes of, of getting some resolution one day. And all we can do is pray that your story will be heard by the right person, that will move someone in the right direction. Yeah, I want to say that, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've been a true crime fan for a very long time, and nothing has prepared me of looking into a family's eyes of justice that is not there, you know. And it really has moved me. And if anybody has any information, no, you can think it's, you know, too small or insignificant. Just come forward and please, you know, let's, let's get this out in the air. Let's, you know, even if, even if you think it means nothing, let's get it out. So this is Connie Leonard, Jerry's wife. Yes. Jerry, uh, Connie, tell us your story. Um, I'm, as I said, I met Jerry at that fundraiser. And um, I just hugged him, of course, and said, I'm so sorry. And we ended up going through high school together, and we never dated in school. We double dated in school. And then nine years later, we ended up getting married after we graduated. My story, however, is, um, and it really goes back to Lynn's daughter. Uh, when my daughter was in, was 10 years old, and they were asked to write a, a story at school about what their their greatest gift, Christmas gift would be. What, what would it be? What do you want? And she wrote a story and she said that it would be that she could give the gift of life to her and Mary. Oh. Oh, wow. And the story went on to say that she knew how much her family loved her. And so this would have been in, what, 2004. So this is something that never, ever leaves this family, both of these families. Well, like Erica said, it, it's something you're passing down now to each generation. It's like the pain and the grief gets passed on at a certain level also and until you have that closure does the third generation then have to take it on it, it, my personal feeling is I absolutely want justice for this person or people or 
whatever. They they have gotten to live 40 years that these two amazing people didn't. I don't think there is closure for this family. It's either one of these families. You're going to love these people. The next generation is going to love them, and the next generation is going to love them. And that's why it was always so important for me to, to also try to keep it out there. And... Uh, and I spent a lot of time with his mom. And I asked her one day, because everybody never really talked to her about it. I said, Mom, would you talk about Mary? Does it hurt you or does it upset you? And she said, I talk about Mary every day if they let me. So I love her. Thank you, Connie. Thank you. Thank you. My mom was kind of the opposite as far as that goes. She never talked about it. Um, and I remember one time when my girls were, I don't know, they were maybe nine or ten years old, and they spent the night with my mom, and they, and she, of course, had a picture of Rick, and they said, can you tell us about Uncle Rick? And she just started to cry. So my girls said, we asked Grandma about Uncle Rick, but she just started to cry, so we promise we'll never ask her again. I was like, oh. The hardest part for me out of this whole thing was hearing my mom screaming in the bedroom, crying. We had a doctor in there with her and trying to calm her down. Which day was that? This was within the first two weeks okay. that they were dis that they disappeared. Okay. Those two weeks, uh, those two weeks I remember because all my brothers and sisters, cousins were sleeping on the floor, scattered throughout the whole house. I remember stepping over them to get from one side of the house to the other, food coming in, and then I remember my mom screaming, crying, just wailing. I've never heard my mom do that. That was the only time I remember her doing that, and it's, that's embedded in my memory. As we noted earlier, the investigating department in this case is the Akron Police. If anyone has information, please contact them at 330-375-2552. And thanks for joining us on this special episode of Ohio Mysteries. Be sure to check out our website for photos, news clippings, and more on the case for Ricky Baird and Mary Leonard. If you like our podcast, help us spread the word. We are on Facebook and Twitter and would be so grateful if you would like, follow, share, or retweet us to your friends and family. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or on our Facebook page. We would love to hear from you. You can even send us an email and share your thoughts and suggestions that way. Send it to feedback at ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. Ryan is having his annual Ryan Humbert Holiday Extravaganza at the Akron Civic Theater on December 11, 12, and 13. It's a benefit for Cleveland Clinic Akron General's Muffins for Mammograms program. Ryan will be joined by his longtime backup singer Emily Bates and a 12-piece band. Check out the details on his website, ryanhumbert.com. You can also sample many of his songs there, and I promise if you click on just a few of those, you're going to become an instant fan. And be sure to follow Ryan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
You can find links to all of our featured musical artists on our website under the Featured Music link. And if you're an Ohio musician creating original music, be sure to send us an email and tell us a little bit about yourself. Maybe we'll feature you too. We promise you the full version of Waiting for the Lightning, so turn up the volume and we'll meet you here next week for a new episode of Ohio Mysteries. Good day before the end of the year You picked me apart From ear to ear And the lines are dead The phone still rings Waiting to see what tomorrow will bring The last parade that came and went Died as fast as the roses you sent You could not look me in the eye You stood there and told me another lie So bring it on Until it hurts Make me feel a little worse So here I stand Alone tonight Waiting for the lightning to strike Yeah, the rain came down just like my guard Thinking you were my good luck charm But you sold me half of what might have been For the low, low cost of an arm and a leg Like a firework spark in a pitch black dark You were looking to make a brand new start But it's now or never, do or die There's no perfect time to wave you goodbye So bring it on Until it hurts Make me feel a little worse So here I stand Alone tonight Waiting for the lightning to strike Well I'm waiting for the Storm rolls in before the cold I watch it all as it unfolds There's nothing more that I would like Than to watch you commit the perfect crime So bring it on Until it hurts Make me feel a little worse so here I stand, alone tonight, waiting for the lightning to strike. Well, I'm waiting for the the lightning to strike.
Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.